Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, for our 40th episode, we have something special. We invited Dr. Laurent LaFosse of Annecy, France onto the podcast. Although many listeners will be familiar with Dr. LaFosse, I'd like to offer a brief introduction. Dr. LaFosse, who serves as director of the Alps Surgical Institute in Annecy, has been an innovator and educator within shoulder surgery for decades. Although he's made innumerable contributions to the field, he's become best known for his advanced arthroscopic techniques that he has shown worldwide in his meeting, which remains one of the most popular shoulder meetings in the world internationally. These techniques include the arthroscopic suprascapular nerve decompression, the arthroscopic letargé, and the arthroscopic latissimus transfer most recently. While not all surgeons have had the skill or courage to follow in his footsteps, these advances in surgical technique have dramatically changed our approach to more common problems and have had ripple effects within the field. And for that, we all owe him a debt. Laurent, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great honor being here. Well, we're very glad you were able to join us. Laurent, I want to start by asking you how you came to be a shoulder surgeon. Oh, uh, I was originally a general orthopedic surgeon. I even do a lot of uh, did a lot of uh, general surgery, including vascular surgery, and I started to do more upper limb extremity as well as I, I developed my spine surgery initially, and then I I got my micro surgery. Uh, uh, diploma because I was doing a lot of free implants of hands and fingers and all this stuff. Then I moved to uh, I developed the shoulder field because that 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 field was really empty. And when I started my practice in NC in 1989, I was a fellow in Paris and I was uh, one of the intern of Paris University. Yeah. And when I moved from Paris to NC, I was 33, and then I, I was a surgeon for upper limb extremity, spine, and shoulder. And then with time, I developed more and more the shoulder, and and then I stopped uh, performing spine surgery in 2000, and then I I stopped performing re-implants uh, of fingers uh, a few months ago. A few months ago. So up until just a few months ago, you your practice was still including re-implantation. Yeah, you know, not as often as what I, I used to do, but I I perform more than 250 implants in my in my life. Uh, one day I calculated how many hours I spent on surgery, and you know, it's uh, uh, you know the, this very famous book about the outliers, and uh, it says that 10,000 hours are necessary to to be at least uh, somebody who who has a, a minimum level. Uh, I think that I've performed more than 45,000 hours of surgery in my life. So it's true. I, I did a lot of surgery, and, and the shoulder was really a passion. I started to work with uh, Goutelier, Didier Pat, all these names that you know. And uh, in spine surgery, I used with Wakami, who was the inventor of the screw in the pedicle of the, of the vertebra. It's... Uh, it's I, I had a chance to know all these uh, very famous people, and they were my mentors, so that, that was great for me. 45,000 hours is 
quite a lot. I think our, our younger listeners, especially our, our residence fellows and newer to practice surgeons can really listen to that and see what it takes to truly become a master. How, how did you ultimately settle in Annecy of all the places you could have gone? Uh, what made you choose Annecy? And you've been there for so long. Um, what has kept you there? Uh, two reasons, two major reasons. Uh, I would say three major reasons. The first one is that Annecy uh, is where I met my wife, and that was the most important. The second reason is that when I met Annecy, I was 14 years old, and my will was to become a, a water skier teacher on the lake. It's, uh, it's the most beautiful city in the world. And when you have been in Paris your time, and then you discover such a city, uh, and then you would love to live there. And the third reason is that the field for shoulder and for hand surgery and for spine surgery, microsurgery of spine was empty. So I had to create all these things uh, for my private practice. And I loved to uh, be the one who, who, who would, you know, uh, be free to develop his ideas and his, his techniques somewhere. But Annecy uh, is in the middle of nowhere. Now it's very well known by tourists because it's close to Geneva and it's a fabulous city. But in terms of there is no university, it's a very small town. So there were not really big interests. And I didn't want to become professor and, and to have a, a public uh, career. I wanted to develop my own ideas. And that, that's, that's what happened. Now, I remember speaking with you previously. You, you still water ski almost every day too, right? In the mornings? Uh, I did. And I did a few, a few minutes ago. I just stopped water skiing about an hour ago. So well, I'm sorry yes. we had to interrupt your water skiing. <laughs> no, um, no, you did not. But I, let me tell you that I, I may go to water ski a second time today. Today I'm not. Oh, good. Going. So it's good. No worries. Yeah, I still water ski, of course. It's uh, still my favorite sport. I'm 65, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not doing tournaments anymore, but I'm still, I'm still moving forward. That's great. I wanted to get into some of the kind of specific things you've contributed to the field. One of the earlier ones was your classification of subscapularis tears, which is still one of the most widely used. And your paper on subscapularis tears is a landmark paper on our understanding of that particular tendon. Tell us about the genesis for that project. How did you become interested in that? You would be very surprised to know that the genesis of this idea comes from Didier Pat himself. Uh, before Didier Pat died, he was very sick, and I used to uh, be his assistant working with him in uh, his private clinic, just uh, helping him to open and close his patient. And he was, of course, at that time not doing any uh, open surgery or any arthroscopic surgery. That was back 1988, exactly. And he told me subscap is certainly the most important muscle for stabilization of the center of the head in the shoulder. But the issue is that we don't know what is the best approach for subscap repair in case of huge retraction. And that idea remained on my head a long, long time. And after, when I started to do my practice in NC, I started to perform arthroscopic surgery like everybody. And I started to develop the uh, intra-articular and the extra-articular 
uh, atroscopic surgery. And then around 1985, I already performed a few subscap repair. But you know, my English is not very good. It was even uh, poor, much more than today. Then, and so I tried to publish all this subscap repair atroscopically. I submit publication and it didn't work. Um, so um, I started to uh, uh, be known about atroscopic subscap repair once the first publication was uh, done by Steve Burkhardt. And as I performed some uh, live surgeries, then the people saw me uh, repairing the subscap. That was the first, uh, really the first step for subscap atroscopic repair. The second step regarding classification is that something was missing in the classification for rotata cuff uh, uh, tear. And supraspinatus, infraspinatus was classified with the path classification, but nothing was moving for the subscap. So what I just did is just to build an equivalent of what Didier Pat did for supraspinatus, but for subscap with stage uh, zero, one, two, three, four. Uh, the only difference is that stage four was something uh, a little more uh, based on the uh, upper migration, upper and anterior migration of the humeral head, which is in contact with the cricoid process, which is not something which is part of the PET classification for supraspinatus. And there is no upper migration on the uh, PAT classification for uh, supraspinatus and infraspinatus retraction. So that concept led me to the 4D classification. Maybe you know it, uh, Peter. And the 4D classification is something which includes the PAT classification, my classification for subscap, the bicep statement, and the fourth dimension, which is the uh, which is the time and pre-op, pair-op, beginning of the surgery, at the end of the surgery, and post-op at six weeks, three months, three years, whatever. So that is, it's part of the global picture of the rotata cuff tear, including the subscap classification. Now, I, I have to imagine that as you approach the subscapularis arthroscopically and did more and more of those tears, especially retracted tears, you must then have gotten the idea for the arthroscopic latergé. Is that kind of where you began to develop that technique? When did you start with that? How did you get this idea? Absolutely, you're correct, Peter. Uh, the fact that I started to repair the subscap and that I moved from intraarticular to extraarticular and I, I started to move outside the bursa, the subacromial bursa, to toward the subcoracoid bursa. And then you start to see the 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 anterior uh, face of the subscap, and uh, we didn't speak about it, but I I, I used to perform a lot of uh, open plexus repair when I was in Paris with uh, Dupac, Calno, and all these people, and I still perform a few plexus repair here in Annecy at the beginning of my practice, and maybe I did close to one thousand plexus repair. So. I used to be very, uh, you know, uh, used to, I, I used to be on this area of the plexus. So the plexus was not a problem for me. And uh, I started to dissect the plexus when I was uh, on, on, on this subscap 
uh, tears, retracted subscap tears. So that that was exactly what Didier Pat told me maybe 10 or 15 years before. Please find an approach for subscap repair. And the atroscopic approach is certainly the most accurate and the less dangerous approach compared to the open one today. So that that was the beginning for me of the exposure of the entire cockpit. So when uh, when uh, uh, my when when my friend Gilles Valch told me I will start to do arthroscopic stabilization for instability the day you will do an arthroscopic latarche, then I just in 2000 started to think about how to perform an arthroscopic latarche, and by exposing the coracoid, exposing the plexus, exposing the subscap anterior part, and then most of the steps were already done. So the only issue was to find the instrument. And my first arthroscopic latarge was in December 2003, when uh, a 50 years uh, old gentleman asked me to repair his uh, uh, instability of the shoulder. But uh, as he was uh, uh, doing a lot of parachute, he didn't want to have any scar on his shoulder. So I told him, I can't do that arthroscopically, but you will be the, the first one. And he said, okay, so you will succeed on the first one. And he had no subscap. So that was my first latarge. It was a latarge for somebody who had no subscap and didn't want any cut on his shoulder because uh, he knew that that would be a problem to get his license to keep on uh, flying. So. That that's the history of the first latarge. But I only had at that time a screwdriver, a shaver, a burr, and 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 an electrode. That's it. Wow, what a start to such a revolution of performing that procedure. And I think you know, a lot of young surgeons and more experienced surgeons learn about the, these techniques at your meeting. And your name and your practice have become synonymous for your shoulder meeting. I actually remember going with Dr. Romeo to your meeting when I was a resident, and my whole concept of orthopedic meetings changed to see you bring patients up to the stage, examine them, have expert surgeons from around the world examine them, and then all of you guys upstage kind of talk to each other and, and agree and critique each other right in front of hundreds, if not thousands of surgeons, and then have them undergo surgery the very next day. It just, it was incredible. It changed for me what I thought an orthopedic meeting could and, and in fact should be. When did you start this meeting? How did you get the idea for this meeting and how has it evolved over, you know, over the last several years and decade? Uh, that's, uh, that's a very difficult question. It's, it's, a, it's not a difficult question. It's an easy question, but it's a difficult answer. Um, it's a long answer because that, the idea, the, the aim of this is that I want to, to be transparent with everybody, with the patient, with the fellows, but even with the other surgeons. And I would say that the companies helped me a lot for that. And Depew was the first company who really supported me, and JP Warner opened me the doors, and and in US as well as Gilles Valch opened me the doors in France. I was just a little surgeon in a little town in France in the middle of nowhere, but the fact that I show these people uh, what I was able to perform as arthroscopic surgeries 
and then that made me become reliable for the companies first and and you know the word of surgeon would not be here without the word of the companies and i always compare the surgeon with the pilots and the company with uh, a car company and if you race on a car you need a car and you need a pilot you need both and they need to be a good team this is what happened to me and i had that chance i was working a lot and i thought that the best way to really show the people without hiding any anything to be neat in front of everybody and 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 then there is no contest and the fact that you just show exactly what's the state of the heart today when you when you publish a paper the paper takes at least one or two years to be written and to see the patient with a minimum follow-up and then it takes one or two years to be published so the day you read a paper it's the state of the heart about four or five years ago which is something necessary but it's like uh you know on uh on the toolbox, it, you need everything. You need a screwdriver, you need a hammer, you need a, a nail, you need a screw, you need... And just, this is only one of, of, of the tools that we have on our toolbox. Live, live surgery, live examination, discussion with the patient, of, with everybody, every surgeon. The surgeon performing a surgery and another surgeon um, making the, the moderation and another very famous surgeon. This is exactly the same thing as what happened in Woodstock when somebody was singing and, and playing guitar and another artist was there and just joined him to play guitar or to listen to him at the same time. So this is why I call this uh, meeting the, the solar, uh, the Woodstock of the solar surgery. And that is really based on the fact that we we just, we don't teach the people, we just share our knowledge with the knowledge of the other surgeons. And we share it in front of everybody with a full transparency in order to show every surgeon in the world who wants to attend that meeting what they can get from it. Maybe they will see uh, an arthroscopic lethargy and they say, we will never do that. Maybe they will see a shoulder arthroplasty and say, wow, what a very interesting trick because this is the way to repair the subscap in such a way that I've never thought about before myself. And maybe something different like the exposure, the, 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 the setup of the patient, the way the retractors are placed. That is the aim of this is just to help the surgeon to to give, to bring a better care to the patient, to improve the, uh, the quality of the patient care. This is not enough. Only sort of surgery live is not enough, definitely. We need science. This is not science, it's technique. But technique is part of our job. It's one part of the chain of what we have to do. One of the more interesting parts of the meeting, at least when I was there again a while ago, um, I mean, and the whole meeting was interesting, so it's hard to pick. I mean, it was it was life-changing for me, was when surgeons, you know, are operating on your patients, 
and potentially something is not going as smooth as you want it to go or someone is struggling, how do you as, you know, you're the lead surgeon, they're your patients, how do you decide when to step in, when to back off, when to encourage, et cetera, uh, all while live in front of, you know, thousands of observing surgeons? I think one of the hesitations on bringing live surgery meetings in the States centers around this concept, around this idea. And so how, how do you make that call, especially when another expert surgeon is operating right next to you? Uh, I would say number one is just to be very clear to anticipate on the rules. And I'm responsible of the patient. And I always, with full transparency, explain to the patient that they will be operated by another surgeon, but I will be here. And I'm close to him. And in any case, if the surgeon doesn't want to keep on going, and if he wants me to take over, and then I will take over. Or even more. If I feel that I have to take over, despite the fact that I'm in front of 1,000 people, I will take over and manage the surgery. Because what remains after this meeting is the quality of the surgery and is the decision for the patient. It's the patient care. I'm not saying I'm better than the surgeon that I invite, but I, I'm just saying that my responsibility is that I should take care of my patient. That being said, when the surgeon performed the surgery, I'm close to him like a pilot is close to the co-pilot when they take off land and everything. But if there is a problem, the captain has to be the captain and to decide. So this is what I'm doing. So when the co-pilot, which is the invited surgeon, doesn't feel well, doesn't feel good or have a problem or just make a mistake or break the humors, that happened once. By reducing an arthroplasty, one of my invited surgeons broke the humors. Okay, what do you want to do? This surgeon, professor, said, okay, I would like to perform offline the repair of the fracture of the humors. And then once it's done, I will show it to the people. Do you agree? Yes or not? I said, I agree. So, he moved on, he made the repair of the humerus, he fixed the humerus, and then maybe one hour later, we show the humerus repaired and everything was fine. The second option is that the patient is still under control, despite the fact that there is a problem by the invited surgeon. And the invited surgeon still feel good to keep on moving, despite the fact that there is a problem and wants to show how to solve the problem live, which is something that already happened a few times. And he's the one who will decide if he wants to remain live or not. The most important is that the surgeon feels comfortable and that the patient has no, uh, how would you say that, uh, has no dead part or uh, black or the other side of the, of the has no uh, issue by by being in live surgery. The, the the fact that he is in life he's operated in live surgery should not influence the quality of the result. This is the key. So if the live surgery is a problem, we just stop the live surgery. If it's not, and then we keep on moving. Interestingly, you know, I've been invited once in in a country for live surgery, 
and I was supposed to perform an atroscopic latarge. And the patient canceled at the very last minute. So they found another patient, but the control of the second patient was not as good as what the first patient was. So I just entered inside the shoulder. I saw the file of the patient. I said, okay, there is no X-ray with dislocation. Yeah, but the patient said he dislocated. And then, nevertheless, I entered the shoulder and I saw a normal shoulder. I was scheduled for an astroscopic latarge. And I said, I'm sorry, I will not perform any shoulder surgery for this uh, young lady. There is no need for atroscopic latarge. And I just stopped my surgery and everybody was happy because it's reality. This is what is reality. It's true. We, you cannot lie when you are alive. Yeah, I think for me, that's the piece that cannot be taught in a textbook or a lecture. And that what was what that whole concept of moving live, whether it's the physical exam or the operation and making those decisions, um, that was the most game changing for me as a trainee. And I, I think about that meeting often, you know, in my practice. Um, so thank you for doing that and continuing to do that. You know, I know I'm sure you have favorite memories from the meeting. It's probably hard to pick a favorite, but do you have a, a couple favorite memories that you can tell us about? Wow. Uh, I have so many. Uh, I would say the one I just told you was uh, one of the most interesting. Uh, maybe another one. Uh, at the very beginning of the surgery, you know, we, we start the surgery before the live transmission. And one surgeon one day was invited and, and a very famous surgeon was just uh, finishing to make the dissection maybe a few minutes before the shoulder arthroplasty. And by doing the release uh, at the upper part of the glenoid, at the posterior superior part of the glenoid with the blade of the scalpel, it just broke the blade of the scalpel at the upper part of the glenoid. But it was like two, three minutes before live transmission. And the time he had for to show the arthroplasty was only 30 minutes for the glenoid. And he was supposed to show the glenoid only. So uh, we performed the glenoid uh, live with the blade still in. And then he finished uh, the shoulder arthroplasty and, and the blade was still in. And at the end of the transmission, we said, okay, now it's time to remove the blade. And the only way we could find the blade was to perform an atroscopy, an atroscopy. <laughs> so we removed the blade atroscopically after the live. But we told that story to everybody. So uh, this is uh, one of my uh, best memories of, of the meeting at the very beginning. My first arthroscopic latarche in 2005, at the moment that nobody believed that it was possible. Uh, but I would say that my first, my, my, my best memories, not one, but many, are the surgeries performed by seniors and, and wonderful people like Bassem El Assam, for example, who perform uh, the tendon transfer. And, and all the other people who made tendon transfer arthroscopically or all the people who perform the uh, shoulder arthroplasty and, and the fact that I learned so much by organizing this meeting. I learned so much from the people that I invite. And every time I invite people coming to NSC to perform live surgeries, I learn, 
I learn, I learn. And, and it's, uh, it's a pity to see how much I have to learn uh, still today. But it's, it's, it's certainly my best memory is to, to learn from, from the people around. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that process, the learning process. You know, you've, you, as you've described earlier, you've invented a several completely novel surgical techniques. Many of our sur listeners are surgeons earlier in their careers who are learning new things. Certainly, surgeons who are later in their careers are still learning new things as they try new techniques and as our field changes. What advice would you give for surgeons as they approach a new procedure or something they've not done before, something that's novel to them? Uh, I would say that uh, this is very parallel to what sport is. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of your interview, you said, I'm a water skier. What about the first time you try to do a new trick? If you try to, to do a new trick and you are not at the level of this trick, you will never succeed. I think that whatever you learn, the most important is to work and to work and to work. Uh, as we described before, I move very progressively from the solar arthroscopy to the solar endoscopy outside the box, then to the subscap uh, approach, then to the coracoid approach, then to the plexus release, then to the arthroscopic attaché. And I think that if you move step by step by step, and then that that is the way uh, to learn it's it should never it should never appear difficult to you you should always be trained to achieve and to do it if you want to run a marathon in 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 two hours and 15 minutes how do you do you just train if you want to to play Rachmaninoff uh, with the piano you just train work the the, the you know, my chance was that I'm not gifted. And if you're not gifted, the only way to be able to do something is to work on it. Because when you start to do something, you cannot do it without your work. The people who are gifted, it's so easy for them. They don't have to work, but they don't succeed with long time. And I think that the, the fact that you are not gifted is certainly the best chance uh, that uh, shows you that you have to work a lot to be able to do on something. Now you can have a passion, an idea to invite, to invent something. And that is certainly the emotional side that uh, you must accept inside yourself. Like uh, every creativity is based on emotion but with emotion, with no work, has no success. I don't know if I'm clear, but I hope I am. As you've done that work, as you've progressed through this new technique, do you have a, a method for recording and analyzing the challenges? Do you have a, a book you keep? Do you have a, 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 an organized way of doing that? Or do you just progress organically through it? You know, I have my videos. I look at the videos. I look at and I, I look at the other people. I look at the way the other people are operating, and uh, I think videos are, are certainly the most important things. And then I read. 
uh, I read the, the papers, I, I read, I prepare my lectures by reading and my fellows are helping me a lot to read and to select the papers I should know before uh, doing something. So uh, I, I have no, I have not written any any book uh, of my experience. This is maybe something I will do in the future. Uh, I participate on a book for complication on arthroscopic surgery and on shoulder surgery. But I I may if <laughs> I may I may finish a book that I started about the shops gap. And 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 this is something that. When I, I I move back to what I've done, and then I move back to my videos to to explain that I don't have any any paper or any book that I uh, where I, I I write something to to keep on my ideas. My ideas are on my head, and there is no nothing else. Dr. Voss, your sons recently joined your practice. Tell us, how does it feel to have two generations of LaFosse shoulder surgeons in Annecy? You know, that's the best chance you may have in your, in your life. Uh, we, when Thibault uh, was uh, 17, he, he, we sent him to U.S. He spent a, a year in U.S. and he got the SAT, SAT, SIT, and, and he was on the top five mathematics and English. So he had a chance to, to become... Uh, uh, engineer or businessman in the U.S. and everything, but he, he did not want to. He, he came back to France and he said, I want to, to become a doctor. And then we had a fight during dinner and I said, no, because at that time it was really hard for me. And I said, no, no, you should really take this opportunity to be in U.S. and to, to have a job in U.S. and to be part of this. And finally, he said, I don't, I don't know if it's because of you, against you but i want to become a doctor and then he wanted to become a surgeon so the fight was over after a few hours and i and and then i saw him just i, I supported him by doing what he wants to do and he became my fellow for six months and he was exactly the same fellow as the other fellow and he was good he has good hands he, he is working hard he is okay and i'm very proud and and proud of what he is doing and, you know, sometimes I learned from him because he moved a lot around the world and he knew and he, he learned a lot of techniques in tendon transfer with Bessem and, and other microsurgery things in that he may not speak about when he's in shoulder meeting, but he knows a lot of double uh, uh, re-implants and all these things. Or, and and that I, when I do microsurgery with him, and then that's really neat because I learned so much. And I learned from, from him for the tendon transfer too. So that's very really nice. It's, uh, and, you know, step by step, I'm, I may move uh, away progressively. And I'm getting old, uh, older than what I was 10 years ago, of course, but less old than what I will be in 10 years. But it's, it's maybe time to let the next generation moving forward. Uh, so the fact that we do something together now and that we have an overlap, I would love that to continue as long as possible and to remain here because we have a perfect fit. We never fight. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, I have a chance to have a, 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 very, uh, a very good surgeon, a good organizer, and I'm very proud of what he is doing. So that's the best chance you may wish yourself in your life.
Well, certainly that sounds um, wonderful. And certainly that's such a great reflection of your parenting, which is um, something we don't talk about often in our podcast, but certainly an important part of all of our lives. I wanted to ask you one other question we've asked a lot of our guests, but I think you may have a unique answer for, which is if you could have dinner with every person from history, who would it be and where would you have dinner? Wow. Uh, I would say that dinner already happened once in my life. Uh, that was with Dr. Rockwood. Uh, that was uh, just a few days. Uh, his wife was operated, his new wife, and she was not his wife yet because, uh, you know, his previous wife died. And Betty met her, and, and that was a wonderful dinner because during the dinner, he asked her to become his wife during... Uh, that dinner where only the four of us were here, Babette, Jane, and Dr. Rockwood. That was in Annecy after she had surgery. And that is certainly the best dinner I ever had with, uh, with a relation, uh, I would say, a business relation or uh, a work relationship with friends or something. Uh, that's, that's a dinner that I will, will remain forever in my mind. That is uh, truly an incredible story. I, Dr. Lafosa, I, we, I can't tell you how much um, we appreciate you having you on the podcast and uh, your insights are invaluable. I know our listeners will really enjoy uh, everything you've shared with us. I think we all owe you thanks as a field for the techniques you've developed and the ways you've changed our approaches to so many different problems. So thank you for your mentorship on the behalf of really our whole field and also for coming to speak with us today. Thank you so much. If I may say a last word to the people here, I, I really want to thank uh, everybody around, but uh, just don't uh, overestimate the people who are famous. I'm, I'm just like everybody. I just work a lot, but I'm not better than anybody. I'm just somebody who has been working a lot and who wants to take care of his patients with a lot of transparency. And I'm really thankful for uh, all the people who has been helping me and helping the, the field of the shoulder and like you, Peter, and uh, like, like all the young generation to keep on moving and to try to uh, get the, the shoulder surgery better with a very good friendship spirit, which is the most important. Shoulder surgery should be a pleasure and uh, with a high quality, but a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I'll echo Pete and thank you so much for all that you've given us, given the field, given so many surgeons and their future patients. You, you have an ability to not only impact your own patients, but so many patients around the world. And that's a gift that we'll keep on giving for generations. Well, that's really all the time we have for today's ASCS podcast. Again, we want to thank the one and only Dr. LaFosse for joining us. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.